Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, everybody. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible.com, the place to go get digital audiobooks information you can listen to, and various other forms of quality audio entertainment. They've got more than 100,000 titles for you to choose from in a wide range of genres, and you can listen whenever and wherever you want. And here's an amazing deal, everybody. Stop for a moment. Ponder this. Right now, you can get a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial by going to audiblepodcast.com slash other people. That's right, a free audiobook, a special deal for listeners of this program and to get it, all you got to do is go to audiblepodcast.com slash other people. Go do that. Get your freebie. It's on the house. It's on other people. Fiction, history, romance, erotica, mysteries, thrillers, sci-fi, fantasy, self-help, children's books. You name it. They have it. You like classics? They've got classics. Flannery O'Connor, William Faulkner, done. Okay? One more time. Here's where you go. Audiblepodcast.com slash other people. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, right. here we go again. This is it. This is Other People. This is 64 kilobytes a second. This is Bibliophiles for Audio Files. Thank you, as always, for being here and tuning in. I appreciate it. I uh, hope you're doing well. Uh, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. And, uh, you know, it's just been busy around here. I'm a little bit fried, uh, as I usually am, by the time I get to this. And my brain feels stretched in multiple different directions. And I feel like I have all these different things to do, and I cannot make progress on any of them sufficiently. Do you ever have weeks like that or days like that? That's sort of where I'm at right now. Anyway, I'm not complaining. I'm happy to be here. Uh, I've been doing a lot of, uh, a lot of communicating, a lot of writing, a lot of emailing, uh, a lot of text messaging and social media corresponding. Uh, so it's an abundance of communication written rather than spoken. And of course now I'm in the act of speaking. Uh, so I'm breaking what has otherwise been a relative vow of silence so far today. So that's happening, and then I have an, an announcement that I want to make sure I, uh, I get out of the way here at the top of the show. Uh, there's a new book coming out on the TNB Books imprint, which is the official imprint of The Nervous Breakdown, which is an online website, uh, thenervousbreakdown.com. It's my online literary community and culture magazine, and uh, we have our own publishing imprint. We put out books, and we've got a new book coming out called The Beautiful Anthology. The Beautiful Anthology, it's edited by Elizabeth Collins, and it features writers uh, from all over the place musing on beauty. So that's going to be available soon. I'll keep you posted, but I wanted to put it on your radar. It's a really cool book, and uh, it makes a great gift, makes a great summer beach read, uh, etc. So there's that, and then I want to uh, introduce today's guest, Ron Rash. Uh, very pleased to have him here. He's the celebrated author of Serena, which is a tremendous bestseller, uh, that is now being made into a major, a major motion picture starring Jennifer Lawrence of Hunger Games fame. And uh, then his most recent book uh, is a novel, and it's called The Cove. And it is available now from Echo, and uh, it has been getting rave reviews. 
and earning plaudits all over the place. So very pleased to have Ron here on the program. Uh, it's a real honor. And, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's from uh, Appalachia. So I have some familiarity with that uh, from my days on the Appalachian Trail. And uh, he's also, I think uh, it's safe to say, a Southern writer. And uh, I have some Southern roots, or at least my parents do. And a lot of my extended family lives down there. So uh, I don't know. I get excited about that. I like talking to uh, a, a genuinely Southern writer. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So uh, rather than ramble about it and uh, get in the way of the thing, why don't I step aside? Let's get into the interview with Ron Rash. Once again, his new novel is called The Cove. Um, so I, you know, the first thing I want to ask you is sort of an oddball question, but are you aware of the fact that there is a tattoo artist named Ron Rash? Uh, who has you know who owns ronrash.com? I don't know if you're. Uh, I am actually. Yeah, that's, that's caused has been a source of amusement. I, I, I never talked to him, but I, I wonder. I suspect we both kind of get uh, interesting emails at times. Yeah, no, he's out in uh, Reno, Nevada. I don't know if you if you're ever out there for a book tour, maybe you could go in and get like a free tattoo or something. Yeah, right. That's a good idea. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of fun because it's not a common name. You know, a last name is not that common, but yeah. So I think I want to start with the South, and I want to ask you about uh, Southern literature and that whole rich tradition that we have in our country and uh, the fact that your work is set in the South. And I'm interested to know if that was preconceived. Is this something that you set out to do when you started your career as a writer? Uh, did you look to the giants of Southern literature from the past, uh, writers that you admired, and did you say to yourself, uh, you know, I'm going to become one of them? Like, did you did you consciously set out to become a Southern writer uh, with a capital S, if that's a way to put it? Uh, no, not necessarily, but I, I do certainly, I, I think I was very much aware of that tradition. And because of that, I uh, I grew up, you know, recognizing that, you know, the the precedent of writers who had taken their little place in the world, whether it was, you know, for Faulkner, Oxford, Mississippi, or O'Connor, middle Georgia. And my, my area happened to be Western North Carolina. And, uh, you know, I, I just, it just seemed to come natural that, uh, that, you know, this was the place I knew best. And I, and I felt, you know, as your Welty once said that, uh, one place understood helps us understand all other places better. And so I've just worked from that premise that, you know, this is the place I know best and, and try to go as deep into it uh, in, in hopes that, you know, the, if I go deep enough, I'm going to hit the universal. Yeah, well, no, and it's like it, it seems like Southern novelists, you know, that's like a category. And then I feel like there's like the New York novelists. And I think there are other I guess there's Western novelists. Um you know what I'm saying? But I feel like like Southern novelist seems like a strong category. Like people get very geographically marked when they're setting their, their work in that part of the country. Oh, I agree. And, and, and it's interesting. I was in New York last night and reading and, um, we were talking a little bit about this and, and I was, you know, I was making, I was talking about the fact that, you know, to me, Richard Price is very much a regional writer. And, and I love his work for that, that he just so vividly brings, that area of New York he writes about uh, to life. Uh, but you're right. I, it, it's kind of interesting that so often it seems 
southern literature gets branded as regional. Uh, but maybe you know part of it is that there just seems to be such an intense focus on on the landscape in in southern fiction. Um, but, you know, perhaps that's part of it. Now, do you feel that there's a is there any kind of uh, bristling that happens? I'm sure you you know you have a lot of friends in the uh, literary community who you know uh, would fall into the southern writer camp, like. Do you feel like uh, any sense of uh, like, like having a chip on your shoulder when it comes to um, you know e- either existing under that label or uh, being a Southern writer and and then looking uh, up at like New York like so many writers from other parts of the country do and thinking to yourself like you know gosh we we seem to get short shrift by comparison uh, do you ever feel any of that do you think that that exists within the literary community in the South I think yeah I think there is a feeling sometimes that. I mean, what, what I find interesting is that you know sometimes there's a there's a sense that you know uh, someone might say from from you know outside the region maybe that oh um, he's a southern writer she's a southern writer uh, or uh, you know a regional writer and and the sense being you know this person is just a regional writer right and and I, what what has made Faulkner and O'Connor such you know, to me, the great writers is the fact that they're universal. I mean, Faulkner's revered worldwide. I mean, his influence, you know, on the French, uh, Marquez, on, uh, you know, I, I, to me, uh, what, what ultimately makes the work worthwhile is the fact that it is so much, you know, that it tra- ultimately transcends the place, even though it's very, very so much of the place. So uh, I, I think that's sometimes when I worry a little or, or feel a little bit unhappy with the label well uh, and then i mean it be- but it begs the question then you know like how to transcend the label and like what is it about faulkner's work or o'connor's work that that uh, makes it universal i mean that's got to be something that every, you know every writer is sort of thinking along those lines to some degree but um you know specifically within uh the tradition of southern literature like do you have a sense of what it is about that work that elevates it yeah well, I, I think it's it what makes it is that it's uh uh, it's true that the characters, their you know, even though the geography, dialect, uh, the culture in many ways is different. That ultimately, uh, you know, Faulkner actually talked about this in his Nobel Prize speech. You know, that it's ultimately about uh, you know the old verities of love and compassion and pride. You know, those things that you know uh, all human beings share. And 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 you know uh, if. The reader just perceives my work as being, uh, you know, kind of mere local color. You know, writing about these quaint Southerners and and their folk ways. Then I failed as a writer. Uh, my hope would be that the reader will say, "Well, yeah, yeah, obviously these characters come out of a different environment, but uh, their reactions to the world, their their fears, their desires, or." Or ones that I understand. So, do you uh, do you ever feel like uh, you've been underestimated because of being a Southern writer or anything like that? Do you ever feel like there's there's more of a uh, road to hoe because of that? Uh, I don't know. I, you know, I mean, my career has just very, been very slow developing, which I think has actually been a good thing. But uh, you know, I mean, my work's been translated into about a dozen languages now. Uh, you know, when I won the Frank O'Connor Award, that was an international short story award. So I think I've... I, I will say one thing, though. Uh, it, it's interesting that I, a number of Southern writers, my contemporaries, include, you know, uh, yeah, we, we seem to be, sometimes I think some of us are better known <laughs> in France and uh, Ireland. And, and I, actually, I was in Australia and New Zealand about a month ago. Uh, you know, uh, there than sometimes than in the Northeast. Well, and I find like because my folks, uh, like I have a lot of family from the South, so I grew up. I didn't, I did not grow up there, but I grew up going down there, and I have, um, you know, some knowledge of it. And I find that, uh, you know, from a traveler's perspective, like when I talk to people from other countries and they ask me where they should go in the states, I always recommend the South. Yeah, and uh, I think that there's a cultural identity and a richness to that part of the country that. Um, other parts of the country don't quite have, or at least don't have in the same uh, to the same degree. Uh, that's the way it seems yeah. to me, anyway. And there's also just kind of like a hospitality and uh, you know good food. <laughs> yeah, and I was actually talking to a, when I was in France the last time. Um, I was talking to a French critic, and uh, and he felt like that the South 
seemed, he felt like one of the strengths, and one thing that made Europeans admire Southern writers so much was that he felt that the Southern writers tended to have more of a sense of history. Right. Uh, and, and I think, you know, there's something to that, just in the sense that very often, uh, because, you know, this has obviously changed in the last decade or two, but that, uh, you know, very often families would live in a place for generations uh, and, you know, would have very deep roots in a place. I mean, I'm, I'm actually living on land right now that uh, my ancestors owned 200 years ago. And, and so, and where is that? That's in Western North Carolina? That's in Western North Carolina. Uh, now, it's been out of the family, you know, actually for about a century. But, I mean, that you know, just knowing that connection, I think, uh, you know, really kind of ties me into that world. But, you know, you can have all that, but if you, if you don't do something with the language, uh, it doesn't matter. And, and to me, you know, um, what I think uh, Southern writing is, has been so good at, uh, from Barry, Hannah to Faulkner, um, is just, uh, you know, the ability to really shape language in interesting ways, and not just folk language. Right. Well, I mean, because that, that was actually, that popped right into my head, is like, you know, the use of vernacular in your work and how you uh, manage to incorporate all these different dialects. Like, uh, I'm interested in, in hearing you talk about how that happens and uh, you know, you must be doing some research, correct? Or, I mean, obviously some of it's... Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, I do a lot of research. And, you know, I actually see uh, writing dialect to me is more an act of translation than mimicry. Uh, you know, I mean, I, you know, there's an art to it. And it's not so much as that you're just, as I say, just writing down the way people talk necessarily, but it's a way of kind of shaping it and, you know... Uh, emphasizing some aspects of it, minimizing others. But, you know, one thing, and I think this is particularly true of Southern literature, is that if you are too true to, to the vernacular, uh, it, it actually comes off as being cliched or, you know, like the Beverly Hillbillies. And so very often uh, I find that I have to back off from it uh, and, and still give the feel of it. But very often... Uh, I do it more, you know, it's it's a very conscious act. It's not so much that I'm just kind of, you know, able to hear these people people speaking this way. It's 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 it's, it's an act of, uh, you know, uh, it's very, or uh, it, you know, it's it's something that I t- you know I shape as carefully as I shape uh, the language that is not in dialect. And and when you go to research these all uh, these dialects, like you know, some of which are. Uh you know, older, rooted in history? Like, how do you do it? Because it seems to me like so much of being able to write good dialogue, um, you know, part of it is having a natural affinity for language and the, and the willingness to sit there and to shape it. Um, because the way people talk and the way good dialogue reads on the page are two different things oftentimes, you know? Yeah, oh yeah. But yeah. it seems like there's such a, there's such an oral um, aspect to it or an auditory aspect to it because, you know, if you don't hear it, it's hard, I think, to internalize it as a writer. So, or, or, unless yeah. I guess you read a lot of it, but when you're doing this research, are you listening to old newsreel tapes or listening to, you know what I'm saying? Do you do any audio? Oh yeah, yeah, I, I do. And and actually, I was very lucky in the in that I spent a lot of time as a child on my grandmother's farm in the North Carolina mountains, and I, I got to hear the, a lot of the older people talk. So uh, the language that I would use, say, in Serena or uh, One Foot in Eden would be language. And in the Cove, uh, uh, that that would be language that uh, some of it would be, you know, words and and, uh, and the kind of rhythm that I, that I heard as a child, you know, that I retained. Uh, but some of it's research, uh, some of it's invention. You know, I'll, I'll occasionally invent a simile um, or sometimes even a word uh, that I feel like would fit. In that, you know, usually it's something where, you know, that kind of something where I would change a noun to a verb or, you know, something like that. But, uh, but uh, you know, I, I do love to do research on the language, and, and, uh, and I love to read dictionaries of slang and, and regional speech. Well, and you're, and you're a professor, and, and forgive me for forgetting the exact title it is, but you've been a professor of Appalachian Studies, is that correct? Well, that's the title, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But what does that entail? Well, uh, it, it, it's actually a, it's an endowed chair. So it, what it's been for me has been, I actually end up teaching in the English department. 
uh, I've talked some Appalachian studies and, uh, you know, or an Appalachian literature class several times. And, you know, right now they have, I'm primarily teaching creative writing. Um, but, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, 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 uh, I, I've also done some work where we bring in people to, uh, discuss different aspects of the region. Sometimes, you know, the economic conditions in the region, sometimes the folklore, sometimes, uh, music, uh, you know, it's just, a um, um, an opportunity at our university because it's set in, 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 you know, so in the center of the Appalachia that, uh, to, uh, you know, uh, not necessarily, you know, to just uh, uh, celebrate the region, but also talk about some of the problems as well. And this is at Western Carolina? Is that it correct? is. Okay. It is. And then uh, just because your, your childhood, uh, to me, seems so interesting. Like you were talking about growing up on your grandparents or, you know, spending time on your grandparents' farm up in the mountains, uh, you know, in Western North Carolina. Like what, what kind of childhood do you have? It sounds like it was pretty rural kind of uh, upbringing. Yeah, yeah, I grew up in a in a rural rural western North Carolina. Uh and uh my my you know my parents uh actually as adults went back to school and and eventually became teachers. So I think I was very lucky in that I got to spend a lot of time as I said with my grandmother and, and hearing that older generation getting that vernacular but at the same time having parents who emphasized reading you know there are always books around the house so it was a you know it was a it was a great uh balance uh and you know as a child i was i was very i was very comfortable being alone and i i spent a lot of time as i say with my grandmother but also just going out in the woods Sometimes for you know eight or nine hours. I mean, this is when I was twelve years old, and you know, just kind of wandering the mountains. So, were you an only child? No, my my brothers. I was the oldest, but my brother and sister never were interested in doing this. They were, you know, but uh, I always they were like, "We're going to the movies." I don't know what. You're yeah, talking. exactly. And <laughs> and you know, because my grandmother didn't have a TV, or uh, you know, there was no car, or truck at the farm, and and I mean. You know, I mean, we would sometimes, you know, it was very isolated, and, uh, you know, my grandmother would just sometimes, in the, you know, I'd eat a big breakfast, and she might fix me a sandwich, and I would uh, take off, I mean, when I was 12, 13 years old, and uh, just wander. Uh, what you would, know, you, what would you do out there? What would you do? Like, and just wander the woods, just, like, throwing rocks and checking out rivers or? yeah yeah sometimes i'd go fishing uh some you know I, the blue ridge parkway was actually ran right uh was adjacent to uh, my grandmother's farm uh and so i just you know i just walked down the parkway and and there were streams and and you know and, and relatives around i would sometimes just go walk uh, i would you know see some relatives uh but i was just wandering but mainly i was just you know like in in the woods you know hunting snakes uh what kind of what kind of snakes are you hunting oh <laughs> uh, well uh, fortunately the you know i would i was hunting anything any of them but uh, you know we had timber rattlesnakes and copperheads up there but fortunately i never ran into one of those but you know but i was just kind of being out there in the woods and daydreaming uh, you know i think in a way probably trained to be a writer you know just kind of being by myself and uh you know, just being dreamy. Well, and, and uh, you know, I was reading an interview with you uh, online as I was getting prepped for this interview, and there was an anecdote that you shared about your grandfather in the book The Cat in the Hat. Yeah. Uh, that seems, like, particularly poignant. Yeah, you know, I, I think that, once again, made magic really, I mean, made language very magical, the fact that, you know, my grandfather could not read or write and would make up stories, uh, uh, particularly when I handed him the, the book, The Cat in the Hat. He just kind of made up a story and flipped the pages. He, he was too proud to tell his son he couldn't read it. Uh, but, yeah, you know, I, I just think that I just had so many things like that that were just really, I think, just great training, uh, preparation to be a writer. Uh, and also I had some problems with speech when I was young, which – uh, made me more of a listener than speaker, and I think you know all all those things ultimately were were really good. And you were as a writer. And you were reading a lot from from a very young age, like you. Oh yeah, you took yeah. I mean, I yeah, I always you know, and I think that's another kind of sometimes you know we're talking earlier about southern writers. Um, I think I mean I've been sometimes particularly where you know I, I and I've had this with several other friends of mine that 
it's almost as if, you know, because of my accent, uh, you know, or just the perception of the South, it's like uh, sometimes people from outside the region, uh, I've had this happen with a couple of readers, you know, it's like they think we're just some kind of savants, you know, that just suddenly we just kind of got struck by this thing that made us able to write that just kind of like a bolt of lightning. <laughs> and yet, you know, uh, every writer I know who's any good in the South is a voracious reader. I mean, that's how I learned to write. You know, I was reading Dostoevsky when I was 15. I was, you know, reading Fitzgerald Hemingway. And then later, you know, I mean, I, I just read incessantly. And, and that's how every writer learns uh and so what was the book when you were, I mean, do you have a book or a couple of books from when you were an adolescent and you were really first coming into literature uh, as a reader that you felt really jarred by? Were there any? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, particularly, yeah, the, the book uh, was Crime and Punishment. Um, uh, you know, I've actually, uh, somebody was asking me about this a while back, and, and, and uh, I, you know, at 15, I certainly didn't understand a lot of what's going on in that book, uh, but... It was the first book that, uh, you know, I, I felt like I'd always entered the book. That was the first book that entered me. Uh, I can remember just particularly that early scene where the pawnbroker and the sister are killed. Uh, that scene, I mean, it just, it affects me in such a way that I thought, you know, that, you know, just splotches of ink on a page can make me feel this. And I, I think that was the book that really, more than any other book, made me want to be a writer. Hmm. Oh, it's, it really, it's, there's interesting parallels too, because uh, you know you write violence very well, and you know you're, you're describing being struck by you know those kinds of scenes. Like, can you speak to that? You know what I'm saying? Because it's not easy stuff to write. You know, and I, maybe that's yeah. what it is. But it's like uh, you know, there's also there's also uh, you know obviously a lot of emotional resonance when it comes to those sorts of uh, situations. And, yeah, I think uh, actually when I wrote my first novel, uh, One Foot in Eden. I really wanted that to feel a little bit like a kind of a Appalachian crime and punishment, uh, I, you know. That in a way, I, I I felt like I was at least, and not necessarily trying to mimic it, but just evoking some aspects of that particular book. But uh, you know, I, I I think violence. I use violence in my work. Uh, I mean, because it's part of life and it's part of the world uh, I grew up in and lived in. Uh, but uh, the same, you know, Flannery O'Connor once said that the reason she put her characters in in situations like that is that that's when character is, is revealed. It's in those moments when, you know, the mask, the facades that we all have as human beings are stripped away in those really dramatic ultimate moments, sometimes of life and death. And I, 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 I never, I hope I never use it violence gratuitously. But, you know, I do feel like it's something that it, it, it's putting the characters in situations where they really reveal who they are. Well, and there is, I mean, there is sort of an, uh, there is sort of a menace. And, and this is obviously isn't all there is in Appalachia, but like it, it feels appropriate. Like I, you know, I actually, I hiked the Appalachian Trail when I was just out of college. Uh, and I started in northern Georgia and uh, walked all the way up to uh, West Virginia on the southern leg of the trail and like, I mean, I think it's fair to say that, that you know, there's a, I mean, it, it's called Southern Gothic for a reason. I mean, you're you're, yeah. draw, you're drawing on something real there. It's not wholly invented, obviously. No, I, yeah, I would agree with that. And uh, and where does that come from? You know what I'm saying? Like, what's the, I guess that's what I'm driving at. Like, when, yeah. it com when it comes to the violence that you're drawing on and how that's part of life down there, um, you know, maybe to a degree that's heightened in comparison to other places. Uh, what is it, do you think? that? Well, you know, the South has had the uh, highest murder rate. Um, you know, uh, that is, you know, something that's been, you know, one of the less positive aspects of, of Southern culture. Uh, and, and the violence very often tends to be more personal. Uh, I think it was Catherine Ann Porter once said that uh, no self-respecting Southerner ever kills anyone he or she doesn't know. <laughs> <laughs> that would be bad that would be bad manners come on yeah right <laughs> you know and and uh you know and, and yeah as i say unfortunately sometimes and particularly in rural areas where you know the law is not as easy to uh you know traditionally you know it's pretty much where people have too perhaps too often taken uh matters into their own hands <laughs> 
Hey, you guys, real quick, just want to mention Audible.com, today's sponsor, one more time, and to remind you of that terrific deal, the free audiobook with the free 30-day trial. It's available now just by going to audiblepodcast.com slash other people. And better yet, you can get books by today's guest, Ron Rash. Go get Serena, the runaway bestseller that is being made into a movie starring Jennifer Lawrence, or get the new one, The Cove. Both are available at Audible. All you got to do is go to audiblepodcast.com slash other people. It's that simple. Why not do that? Thank you very much. Now back to the program. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about how you came into uh, being a writer. Obviously, you were embracing books as a young person, and then uh, you went to college and uh, studied English. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And mm-hmm. so did you know, like, when did you know like, that you were going to start uh, writing fiction? Or that, when did you start to feel that, you know, that itch? Well, you know, I, I came to it late. Uh, most of my, my friends who were writers were writing, you know, when they were pretty young. Uh, I mean, they, you know, they were trying to write, you know, maybe trying a novel when they were 10. Or in high school, you know, they were writing for the school magazine. I didn't write anything until I got into college. Uh, I, and I think mainly because I was so consumed with athletics at that time. I was a, a, a runner, and I ran in uh, high school, but also ran in college. And a lot of my energy was going into that, though I was still reading a lot. But, but uh, you know, my sophomore year of college, I just, you know, uh, it's just kind of like uh, one day I thought, well, you know, I, you know, I, I love reading these books. Uh, you know, maybe I'll try it, <laughs> and I did. And it, you know, and it was very slow. I wasn't one of those people who, you know, uh, would have been a, sh- you know, was a shining light. I mean, I, I was, I wrote for years, and it, I could, you know, I think I'd, I'd read enough to know I wasn't writing well. Uh, but, uh, for some reason, uh, I, I just kept on. And finally, when I, you know, I got about 28, I finally wrote something. I felt like, well, this is pretty good. You know, it's not necessarily derivative, but it's okay. You know, uh, and, and I, you know, fine. And after that, it was just kind of a slow development. Hmm. And so, and you said you were running in college, like what, you a sprinter? I was 800 meter runner. Okay. And yeah. so... So you must so you must have been pretty fast. It's it's interesting. Like I find that there are, uh, are a lot of riders who are runners or who are like long distance walkers. Or you know, I, I definitely have that. But I mean, do you do you still run? Is that part of your like? Well, unfortunately, my knees are pretty shot. I do the elliptical for about an hour, but but I think what it did for me was uh, it it taught me discipline. Uh, you know, the ability to get up and, you know, 6 o'clock in the morning, you know, it's 20 degrees and go out and run. And uh, and just to approach it, you know, uh, as it was when I would run track, you know, it, very often I'd, be, I'd train nine months, you know, for the season. And, you know, that, so it's, it's almost like writing a novel. You know, you just go in day in, day out, and and you keep working, you keep working. And the payoff, well, for me, usually comes in about three years. But, uh uh, I've always been kind of an obsessive person uh, and uh, never well-rounded. <laughs> okay, so like, so with running, obviously, there's the obsessive, you know, you have to be really regimented in terms of how you train. Obviously, there's an obsessive aspect to writing because you're, you know, most people anyway that I know who do it, they do it at least five days a week, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, with, oh yeah. On, on a schedule. And so are there any other aspects of your life? Like, I mean, is it pretty much anything that you get interested in you find yourself super obsessed with? Is that how it works? Yeah, but uh, but it but in a way, I, I, what I've you know I seem to have done uh, in my life is, uh, I, I, you know, I've, I've just picked one thing, and I've just tried to be as good at it as possible. And and the first one was you know running. Uh, How good were you? Ah, I, I was you know I was okay. I mean, I ran. I, I don't know if you know times, but I ran one fifty three. Uh, which is you know, not a bad time. No, uh, that's pretty good. <laughs> years ago, that you know, particularly that that, that long ago. Um, but then I pulled a hamstring, and it, it, it was it was kind of a seamless move straight into writing. You know, using all that energy and time, I just kind of shifted it into writing. Isn't it? No, it's interesting. I've I've heard this story kind of repeated. Uh, not just with writers, but with a lot of artists. Like you'll you'll hear about like uh, I, rem- I remember Martin Scorsese was like a sickly child, or it's some sort of illness or injury, and that's what drives a person into the arts, or at least provides like the the transition. 
Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like all of a sudden it's like, okay, well I can't run and so, but I can sit down and put a pen to paper or, you know. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean that, I mean, it, it was, it was just, uh, as I say, I, it was almost like getting a baton pass. You know? I mean, so you were immediately like, as soon as that hamstring was pulled and you, you sort of just, you know, fell into this riding, were you immediately working um, on, on that kind of regimen that we just discussed? Were you starting to get up early and, and treat it with that level of discipline? Not not immediately. I mean, I I was I started focusing more on it, but I actually, you know, I, I my track career career ended when I was twenty three, and um, so you know for a couple of years, three actually three or four years, I I was not as obsessed as I should have been. I mean, as far as you know the discipline, but then when I got about twenty seven, I, I you know I. I said, you know, I made. I said, do you want, do you want to uh, really go at this thing hard, riding, and maybe find out after a decade that you're just not any good at it, or would you rather not know? Can you live with not knowing if you could have done it? And for me, uh, I would rather have failed at it than not know. Right. I mean, and did you ever? I mean, it was a long process, so this wasn't. Uh, oh yeah. You know, this is this is years and years. Do you ever find yourself uh discouraged? You know, did you ever find yourself measuring your uh your progress based on external factors like publication, whether or not, you know, the the smaller literary journals were picking up stories or poems or whatever it was? Like, you know, how did you maintain the discipline in your apprentice years um, you know, and, and weather the rejections and all the usual stuff that, that yeah. writers go through? Well, I don't know. You know, I mean, that's always kind of an interesting question because I, I've known so, you know, people who who had much earlier success than I did who just finally got discouraged and quit. But uh, I think, you know, I, I just I would get just so, you know, I would I just felt like I, I, I you know, I wasn't going to worry about that. Uh, you know, I was just going to keep doing it, and I'm eventually. I felt like if I if I wrote something good enough, somebody would notice. I mean, I didn't publish my first book till I was I think I was right at forty, uh, uh, you know. But uh, which I think ultimately was very good for me as a writer because uh, I don't think it's necessarily good for writers to get a lot of attention when they're young. Uh, a lot of distractions come once you get to a certain level, and uh, you know. So I was able to work. I'm fifty eight now. I was able to pretty much to work till I was about fifty without. You know, um, anyone really caring, <laughs> and that—that that, you know—but it was good because I was still, you know, I was writing, and 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 uh, I think I was getting better. Right, and like just like in, in... and my whole focus was on just on writing. Yeah. So how did you, you know, and and I mean, other than just practicing it day in and day out, you know, did you have any ways to measure how much better you were getting? Like, you know, it's it's sort of hard. It's sort of intuitive, I guess. You just kind of have to read your own work, and, and like you say. Com- Compare it to the books that you've read and loved, um, you know, or make some sort of mental uh, comparison there. But I mean, uh, I don't know. Some different writers do it different ways. Did you find yourself measuring progress in any kind of like really specific, quantifiable way, or was it more just like uh, a gut feeling and and just? Well, I was yeah, I was starting to get some notice. You know, I was starting to get some. Uh, you know, I kind of I, like a lot of writers. I was just kind of moving up the kind of the tier of literary magazines, and you know, I can remember the first time I got a actually a poem in, in uh, Southern Review, and, and you know, and, I, and that was kind of a, a milestone for me. You know, being in there, and uh, I got a couple of awards, uh, and so, and but but the main thing was I I started feeling like I'd found my own voice. Uh, you know, and 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 the work was pretty good. I was feeling good about it, and uh, so I just you know, and even though very you know, very often uh, the work was getting turned down, particularly uh, book length manuscripts. Uh, you know, I just kind of you know, I I, I just I, in a way I, I don't think writers have a choice. I mean, you either, you just have to do it. I mean, you know, it's not even a choice. Uh, you. You know, it's almost. So you had, you, had, you know, had, it just—it was just part of my life to write. Yeah. Did you? And so you said you had like book length, like uh, you had novels that were sent out and did not make it into print in the early part of your career. Yeah. You know, in collections and uh, yeah. You know, in my first novel, it got turned down. 
you know, in New York, about every house and the novel One Foot in Eden. And, uh, and uh, it looked like I had a chance to get it published, but the publisher wanted me to change it to where there would be a single narrator instead of the, I have five narrators in that book. And, and uh, I just, I couldn't do it. I just felt like it would ruin the book, uh, and so I, I I didn't take that opportunity. And and it, you know it, it was only two years later I got it published by uh, a very small house in uh, North Carolina. But it the book got lucky, got a couple of good national reviews, and uh, and then you know eventually Picador picked it up as a paperback. So that kind of got me you know into New York and into you know first major publisher. And so how did you handle when the, when the book initially went out to New York publishers and the rejections were coming back? Um, I don't know. You seem pretty level about it, but it, it has to hurt. I mean, I, I've been through it myself. It's never easy. Like, how did you deal with that? Well, it's not. I mean, it's frustrating, and particularly when, you know, there, you know a couple of times it's, it, it was close. You know, the editor said, well, you know, we really like this, but, you know, for whatever reason. But... Those are you know, it was, it was a book I felt good about. You know, I felt like it was a good book and, you know, the best I could write, you know, at that time. And so I just, you know, I just started on another one, <laughs> you know, and, and just figured, you know, eventually somebody will take this or they won't. And, you know, as I say, eventually it, it did get published. So when, and when you sit down to work on something new, um, you know, I think I read something uh, about you where, you know, you don't even know what form you're working in because you write poems you write short stories you write uh, obviously long form fiction uh like talk a little bit about your creative process when you sit down to work yeah well yeah i don't i don't know uh you know sometimes uh i always start with an image and uh and and that image can lead to a poem or short story or novel uh for the cove it was the, the image that started the whole book was a a young mountain woman she was peering through a rhododendron leaves and she saw this man uh you know bedraggled young man playing a silver flute i mean the whole book came out of that image and where did this happen like where were you when you had this vision i was just in uh i think that was uh you're like i was playing the flute in the woods and uh <laughs> yeah I, I, it just kind of you know it came to me you know i think i was actually in my office i was just kind of you know sitting there i'd been doing a lot of research about the uh that prisoner, you know, that uh, uh, internment camp, and, uh, you know, I thought, well, you know, there's an interesting story there, but I'd, I'd been, you know, nothing had come, I mean, and uh, I'd read that, you know, the book, the initial research I'd done had been about a year earlier, and I, I just kept thinking, well, you know, this is an interesting idea, you know, I mean, or that could be an interesting book here. I was finishing up Serena at that time, uh, but then just, you know, one morning, you know, I had that image, and it just kind of, uh, you know, it, it sparked and and that you know that happened with Serena too. Uh, had an image of a woman on horseback, and the whole book started with that. Interesting, yeah. I mean, then these female, these strong female characters that you write, you know, that's sort of unique too. I feel like, um, you know. Yeah, you know, and it's it's never necessarily a conscious thing. I mean, you know, it's not like I go out saying, "Well, I'm gonna write this book about you know a female," you know. Uh, but the, you know the images come to me, and sometimes it's a male, sometimes it's female, uh, sometimes it's an old person, sometimes yeah. a child. Yeah. So, and uh, do you have any sense? I mean, I, it gets into like you know it can get sort of into this like uh, psycho speak or whatever. But when you yeah. talk when you talk about seeing these images and where this stuff comes from, uh, that's fascinating to me. <laughs> you know, like all of a sudden, like this image will just appear in somebody's mind, like. I guess it's you're just working some deep level of your subconscious, and this thing just announces itself. Or do you do you attribute it in any different way? Is there like a, a, a another deeper level that you think this stuff comes from? Or is it just... I don't know. I find it so mysterious. Uh, I mean, and I think most writers do. I mean, you know, as a writer, you know. I mean, you know, why why do you know why can you you know for months know something and suddenly it it clicks and you realize that well there's a poem or story here i mean it's 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 amazing and i you know i don't know where it comes from i think sometimes uh, to me and and i think other writers you know when i talk to other writers i think they feel the same way sometimes it almost feels like the stories are just out there in the ether and uh the writer is almost like more like a 
you know, a, you know, radio tower. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's just kind of like the, you know, the signal just happens to come in and, and hit. <laughs> but you have to be working, you know. Oh yeah, That's yeah, and I, and I think I think you have to put yourself in, you know, an environment or a situation where you're ready for that. You know, go, you know, I, I make myself go in and write even the days I can't. Um, well, it's, it's amazing how, how much good writing you can do on the days when you can't, though, you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I make myself go. Yeah. So um, do, how much talent do you feel you have? Do you know what I'm saying? Because you've obviously had some success, and you, you, know, you obviously have an affinity for it, but um, it's always an interesting question, you know, between hard work and talent. Like, do you have yeah. a, a sense of that? Like, how much of it is, is something that's innate and is inborn, and how much of it is something that's developed through hard work and discipline over a long period of time? Uh, well, I, I, yeah, I do think I've worked hard. I mean, I know I have, and, and you know, and like most writers, and... Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think what I've—I mean, I, I never felt like I had talent. Uh, I think I've just worked hard to get a lot of it. But I do think one thing that I've always had, maybe, uh, is uh, of empathy in a in a way. I think you know, even as a child, I, I can remember. You know, I would see somebody, and particularly somebody like, you know, maybe I, I can remember when I was about five, I saw a child, uh, another child with polio, and, you know, in a wheelchair, and it was almost unbearable. And I think I've, for whatever reason, I've always been able to put myself in other people's head, you know, or, or, or you know, attempt to, I guess. Where do you and get I, where do you get that from? I mean, aside, I don't know. You, you, either of your parents that way? I mean, do you have a, a? Yeah, I think my father was. My father uh, was an artist, and and I think uh, I mean I do think that that is something, and and I I think I have evidently a pretty good ear for dialogue, uh, or you know, hearing the way people speak. Maybe. What, what kind of artist was your father? He was a a painter and a, uh, a potter. Oh wow! Okay. Professional, yeah. like that's how he made his living, or is it something he just did? No, uh, he did it, and he uh, he actually ended up teaching art. So I mean, and he, but he was good at the pottery. And uh, did, did he have a similar kind of discipline? I mean, was that something you grew? Yeah. You grew oh up yeah, he's very, yeah, he was obsessive. Okay. Yeah. So, so you're your father's son in that way. Very much so. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and then when did you feel like it, like at what point in your career, you know, you kind of, you kind of, you know, like, like we talked about, you came up somewhat slow and you had this like long climb where you were sort of working, um, under the radar and perfecting your craft. And then, um, you know, eventually you started having some success. Like at what point did you feel like I, I can do this? Like this is, this is going to work potentially. Like, was there a book or a moment that you can point to where you sort of had that feeling or have you never had it? <laughs> Even where I, where I felt like okay, I've I've done it right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I you know I've I, I've had some. Um, yeah, I've had those. You know, I felt that way with One Foot in Eden. Uh, you know, my first novel. I felt like you know, uh, this is this is a book I can be proud of. You had that confidence. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm not saying it was Proust, but <laughs> but I, I felt like you know it was a book that I could put my name on and be proud of. Right. Yeah. And then what about like I mean then you have the you know the much more explosive success of Serena. Um yeah. uh, which is about anything. I mean that's about as much as you can hope for um as as a writer of literary fiction no matter the region or the or the country, you know like Yeah. That yeah. was a, that was a big book. Like what was that like for you? I mean I've, Well, it was you know I I felt like it was the best book I'd written and and I I I feel I feel like it's the best novel I'll ever write. Uh, I, I think just something happened where it just seemed like a lot of things came together in that book. You know, it's kind of my big book, and uh, you knew. And you but, knew it. You, did you know it as you were writing it? Did you have that sense? Like I felt it. Yeah, I felt like this. This was going to be the as, as good as I could do. Yeah, I did. Uh, I mean, I wrote that book in a in a fury. Uh, I was writing like twelve, fourteen hours a day for. Uh, a couple of months. I mean, it was just, I, I about went crazy. Uh, and, and friends actually told me they just thought I'd gone off the deep end. Really? Uh, I've never gotten that deep into a book. So wait, so twelve or fourteen hours a day for two months to get the full manuscript? Uh, at least. Yeah, I would. Now I would. I would take like two or three days just to collapse. 
you know, about every two weeks. But, yeah, I was just trying to get this thing down because it was almost I was afraid it was going to evaporate because the whole book kind of came to me real quick. Okay, so you had that image of the of the woman on the white horse, and yeah. and then the entire plot just sort of grew out of that in and, and some sort of, like, massive uh, parade of images? Or, you know, how did it work? Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, yeah, and, and you know, I... I'd re- you know, I'd, I knew a lot about the Smokies, and I knew what had happened there, and all those kinds of things. So, you know, I, knew, I you know, it wasn't like that was a. Uh, I'd, I had all that. I'd done a lot of research, but it, it wasn't like I wasn't even consciously thinking about doing that novel until that image hit, and then I realized that you know it was she had something to do with the, uh, uh, you know that, you know the 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 park or you know the forest and. Uh, yeah, I just kind of ran with it. Or, or it ran with you, kind of. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so now, uh, what about the film adaptation? That's pretty exciting. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm very happy with the people involved. Suzanne Beer is a great director, and, uh, and, and Jennifer Lawrence is fantastic. I I don't know if you saw her in Winter's Bone. but that, that was my favorite movie. Winter's Bone was my favorite movie the year that it came out. Yeah. And I, my memory is terrible, so I don't know what year it came out, but it was like 2010 or 2009. Yeah, and... And she was just amazing. Yeah, no, I, I just I remember walking out of that movie thinking to myself, that was a perfect movie, like note perfect, like there was nothing out of place in that movie. And then uh, I thought that her performance was just spectacular, and uh, and John Hawks, I believe it's John Hawks. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He played Uncle Teardrop. He was magnificent. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, you know, uh, really good director. Uh, it's well, uh, it's well cast. Like you feel, I mean, obviously you feel comfortable with her playing. Oh yeah, and, and she grew up riding horses, and I think that's going to be important. You know, I think she's going to be somebody who can play that role with the physicality uh, Serena has in the novel. Um, well, that's exciting. And so, you know, uh, have they started shooting yet, or is that? Is... Yeah, yeah, they they've been shooting for several weeks now. Have you gone? They're filming in Czechoslovakia. Oh, they are. So you have or not... Czech Republic now? Yeah. And you have not been to the set, then I take it. No, no. Any plans to go over there? Uh, no, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I've got a book tour here uh, that won't finish until June, the first week in June, and you know, and I feel like I'm, I'm better probably just staying away from that. I haven't even read the screenplay. I, you know, it's, it's their vision now. Who and, wrote, and uh, who wrote the script? Who adapted it? Uh, Christopher Kyle. Okay, I'm not familiar. Yeah. I'm not familiar. Yeah. Uh, he's done he's done a couple of good movies. So, uh, yeah, you know, it's it. I'm I'm pleased with it. Wow. That, and so I guess I mean, if there's some big premiere uh, for the film, I would imagine you'd be there, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I would. I would. It would be nice to meet meet these people eventually. Yeah. And do you have? I mean, do you have a certain? Um, I mean, it sounds like you have kind of like an appropriate level of detachment from the process and an understanding that, you know, the movie version is their version and and your version is your version. I know sometimes writers get um, upset by changes that are made or, you know what I'm saying? Like, you don't. Yeah, I I just, you know, I think if you uh, allow somebody to option a movie, uh, from my point of view, I, I, I don't think I've, I mean, I've kind of given up the right to complain. You know, if I don't like it, I mean, but at the same time, you know, uh, it's, it, as I say, it's their vision. It's not going to change a word of the book. You know, the book remains the same, but it's just going to be a different medium. Uh, uh, so, you know, yeah, but I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm not worried in any way about that. And then, how- I mean, I, I think as a human being, obviously, I mean, if it were, were a terrible movie, I mean, I'm sure, you know, that would bother me, but, uh, you know, at the same time, uh, it will bring. My hope is, you know, it's going to bring more readers to the book. I would imagine it will, especially after this uh, Hunger Games. Phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. Like, I think you're in good shape. Yeah. And so, how did the deal go down? Like, how did you? Um, how did the How did the book get optioned? Do you? I mean, what was that process? Uh, it was. Uh, you know, uh, I have an agent in, in Los Angeles uh, who does film rights, and uh, it. You know, she felt that it might. You know, get. You know, there might be some interest, and it turned out there was. Uh, a production company, 2929, bought the rights. Uh, they did The Road, uh, Nick Welshler. So, uh, you know, and it just kind of started there. But, you know, like every other writer, I mean, we all have had, uh, every writer I know pretty much has had, you know, options. And so you just, you know, you figure, well, that's nice. You get a little bit of, you know, a little bit of money, but then it does, nothing happens. But, you know, this time it actually did. 
Yeah, I mean, it's unbelievable. Well, and so yeah. when's the movie due to come out? Do you know? I don't know. I, I, I think, I, I don't know. I better not even try to say. I, I, I don't know, but. Uh, Sometime in the next year or so. so how about that? I, I guess. I would think next year. Yeah. yeah. And so, okay, so now you're on this book tour. Um, you've had that success. The Cove is coming out to great reviews and um, a lot of fanfare. Uh, you said earlier you're 58. Uh, like, what's do, do you have a sense of the future? Like, you know, do you, I mean, did you uh, are you more of a one day at a time person, or do you have this thing planned out? Like, what more do you want to do? Uh, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm actually working on a new book stories, uh, so that's going to be out next March. Uh, so I'm finishing that up right now. Uh, and you know, I, I don't really have it mapped out. I, you know, I, I'll just go, go with what what comes next. Uh, I'm not sure I'll write. You know, right now I just want to write stories. That's my favorite form. Why is that? I I think it's to me it's the most challenging. I think it's uh, you know you have to bring pretty much everything you bring to a poem and everything you bring to a novel and find a way to put it in maybe about 15 pages. Yeah, it's like really concentrated. Yeah, yeah. But when it works, you know, what, what, when someone such as, you know, a Connor short story checkoff, it's just amazing. And so what about, um, you know, uh, like creative energies? Because, uh, you know, you sound like you have uh, a ton of energy and you're producing great work. Um, do you feel like as you age or as you get into, you know, closer to your 60s or whatever, do you ever think about that creatively? Do you look at writers who've had careers where they've, you know, they've written great work? Um, into their older years, does that factor into your mind at all? Like I, I think about that, and I'm only 36. I'm like, you know. yeah. Well, I just, you know, my, you know, I, I just hope that, uh, you know, it keeps coming. You know, I, I, I can tell. I, you know, at 58, I don't have the energy I had a decade ago. Uh, but, you know, you hope you gained a little more, maybe wisdom or, you know. Uh, development of what talent you have as you continue to work, but yeah, you know, I just don't think about those things. I just kind of take it one day at a time, and uh, you know, and and just do what I can, you know, and write the best I can, and and hope hope it works. Yeah. Do you feel like the Do you feel like your fiction is going to remain rooted in the South? Do you feel like in terms of like the geography and the the, the setting? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, you never know, but uh, you're not you're not going to suddenly write like a Brooklyn novel. You're not going to just <laughs> bust it. No, I, I don't think so. But you know, I, I think I've got enough. I feel like I've got enough in that landscape. I'll never exhaust it. Well, it, it's all uh, it's all very fascinating, and it's been such a pleasure to talk with you. And um, you know, I wish you all the best on the rest of your tour, and uh, with the Cove, and you know, I'd be very excited to see. Uh, Serena come out and, and uh, you know be a big successful movie and, and hopefully bring a lot of new uh, readers to the book. Well, thank you. Well, I'll see you when I'm out west, or, or you. Yeah, I'm in Los. Where... I'm in Los Angeles. So if it, yeah, I'm doing it... two readings in Los Angeles. Oh, really? Or when, near there. When is that? Santa Monica and Pasadena, I think. Okay, and when's that happening? I don't know right off, but if you if you're interested, you can go to Harper Collins. They have my tour schedule. Okay, cool. Well, Ron, I appreciate it so much, and uh, I wish you all the best. All right, take care. Okay, everybody, there you go. That's Ron Rash. Go get a copy of his new novel. It is called The Cove. It is available now from Echo. And while you're at it, keep an eye out for Serena. That's the preceding novel, the big bestseller, the one that's going to be made into a movie starring Jennifer Lawrence. I think that's happening sometime soon. Uh, I don't think Ron has a website. I wasn't able to track one down, but if you want to find him on the web, you can go to the HarperCollins website. He's there. There's information. This show does have a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed, at otherpeoplepod. I have a Twitter feed, at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook page. And if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And thanks once again to our sponsor, Audible. Don't forget to go get your free audiobook. To do that, just go to audiblepodcast.com slash other people. Again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash other people. And one more plug for the beautiful anthology. Keep your eye out for that. If you want to uh, stay tuned to all the latest, just follow The Nervous Breakdown on Facebook. Uh, We've got a Facebook page over there. We also are on Twitter at TNB Tweets. So keep an eye out for the beautiful anthology. Uh, anything else? I don't think there's anything else. I think that's it. Uh, did I mention that I have a slight fever? I am slightly feverish. I feel a little bit achy, uh, but I'm in denial about that. I refuse to accept the reality of illness. 
which I'm sure is an extension of my deep-seated primal fear of ultimate disintegration, which happens. So thanks for listening. Thanks for spreading the word about the show. Thank you for uh, tweeting it and uh, liking it and all that kind of stuff. Please remember that W.H. Auden, Auden, W.H. Auden, as he grew older, was known for living in an extraordinary filth and that Tolstoy once said to Chekhov, quote, you know I can't stand Shakespeare's plays, but yours are worse, end quote. Uh, okay, back in a few days with more uh, conversations and uh, rambling uh, monologues and whatnot. Uh, in the meantime, please uh, enjoy yourself wherever you happen to be. Please remember how uh, extraordinarily fleeting the entire business is.